0: I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox. Or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash valuehive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash valuehive. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matemco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created emergingmanagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O. Dot org slash global dash investor the Matimico team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of mit innovators This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls, and inside the earnings calls, You can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have one X, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite, and you can star companies, make them your favorites, and you'll get notifications for new conference calls. And they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about quarter. First, it's hundred percent free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over the, over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. I have Doror Poleg. Uh, Doror is a author. He is a, uh, has history in private equity. He uh, also runs a website um, under his name, and he writes about uh well we're going to talk about ponzi schemes we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies the future of the solo corporation and um how crypto and real estate could uh interact and kind of change the whole game so this is going to be a pretty a pretty sweet podcast there's going to be a lot of metaphysical conversations about the future and and what what things could look like what things couldn't look like uh, but George, thanks so much for coming on. I, I I had a chance to listen to your podcast with Scott Galloway, in doing um, in doing some research for this podcast, so I know a little bit about you from 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 that. But for those that don't know, uh, who are you and 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 what do you do for a living? So first, great to be
1: here, Brandon. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, the main thing I do these days is write and teach on the internet. So that sounds rather quaint, but I spent uh, two decades doing real estate development and private equity real estate, mostly in China, so really a hardcore contact sport. Uh, And before and after that, I was involved in developing and investing in online media ventures of various kinds. And over the last five or five six years, I've been mostly focused on on the future, starting with the future of real estate and kind of how technology changes the way we work, live, shop, uh, store stuff, and move around. Uh, So, I wrote a book about that, published it a little over two years ago, a book called Rethinking Real Estate. And what that book did is actually predict a lot of the stuff that everyone's worried about at the moment. You know, people are not moving back to the office, Uh, people are not going back to work. Uh, A lot of people are buying houses in the suburbs. A lot of people want to live in cities, but a lot of the supply in cities is not exactly what is not exactly affordable or what they want to do. And, And of course, technology plays a big part in each one of those. And out of that book, I basically started to to have a more general focus on, you know, the the future of work, the future of financial assets, which are two things that are very relevant for real estate, but they're relevant to everyone else as well. Uh, So over the past few years, I mostly write about them, you know, anywhere from like the New York Times or, you know, doing interviews with Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal, but mostly just really writing about my own website, as you mentioned, and uh, speaking about it. So advising, you know, some of the largest banks and private equity funds and other kind of these type of creatures. Uh, all over the world, just flying around, having a talk with them, scaring them a little, giving them a little hope. Uh, But essentially, my my favorite thing to do is just to, you know, write my newsletter every week. And if I could just do that and be left alone, then that would be wonderful.
0: Have you always had a passion for writing? Or was it something like a muscle you had to develop over time?
1: Uh, I'd say both. So I, I was always interested in writing and and performing as well so you know i was kind of like i I majored in theater in high school i always wrote all the different productions even in in elementary school i kind of helped (laughs) write some of the kind of funny parts of of different ceremonies and kind of productions and uh and actually everything i've ever done in life always started from writing and it started from writing on the internet so uh even in the mid 90s you know i was involved in, in like nightlife and party promotions when i was in middle school a lot of that was about me writing online in various forums and chat groups about music, uh, about nightlife, and then kind of making friends and being invited by all sorts of club owners and producers who kind of work with them or collaborate with them uh, on, on putting together events. And then even in a place like China, I basically showed up, started writing about it online, met a f- couple of other people who had like a really cool blog about Chinese media and tech. Uh, And through that, kind of like built my expertise and ended up investing hundreds of millions of dollars of people's money into like shopping malls and office buildings. It all started from being like this weird guy who writes about like Chinese trends on the internet.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: And more recently, uh, yeah, also just writing my newsletter about whatever I'm interested in and kind of first taking the real estate world by storm a little bit. And then now just trying to take the rest of the world by storm.
0: It sounds like it's a big big jump between writing on the internet. And then as you said, managing hundreds of millions of dollars, allocating hundreds of millions to various real estate projects. Can you help us cross that chasm in, in, in kind of that timeline where you're writing, you're gaining this knowledge and then what were some of the deals that you were constructing early on or, or, or some of the opportunities that you saw that allowed Mm -hmm. you to manage that money?
1: Yeah. So first that chasm is i think fascinating because ultimately that that's what we're here to talk about this is this is the internet and this is what i think many people are just starting to discover that you know you need to have your own personal brand you need to have your own distribution channel you need to have an opinion and also there's people out there who actually care about what you have to say regardless of who you are there's some people who want to hear about that from you. Even if you're not the greatest expert in the world, maybe they like the sound of your voice, maybe they like your background, maybe like they like the way you explain it. And within that is part of your value, uh, at least in economic terms. And, and, and this is what your career is going to be built on increasingly. So in a way I see my own career as uh, a preemptive effort to live that kind of life, just because I'm inherently more anxious and uh, inherently more needing of freedom and not willing to rely on anyone else for my livelihood. So I kind of took a few jumps that maybe were unnecessary, but I think they're increasingly necessary for everyone else as well, just because there's fewer alternatives in terms of just getting a normal, boring job. And I'm sure we'll come back to that. But as for your question, so if we take China as an example, I can, I can actually tell you exactly what happened. So I, I was always really interested in China. Uh, and in kind of Asian culture and and history in general and in languages more broadly. And I was living in Australia at the time. I was finishing my my bachelor's degree in, in media and communications and kind of digital design. And I was kind of plotting my way of, you know, how can I move back to like a more interesting place? Like Australia was wonderful, but I was like, okay, I want to live in Japan or in Thailand or in China or somewhere like stuff happens and, you know, things are changing quickly. And then a friend of mine, his family had like some diamond polishing business there. So nothing to do with with anything. But he was like, you know, my dad is sending me there to learn something about our factories. And I know you're kind of like interested and you want to learn the language. Why don't you just come with me? You know, we'll we'll have like some tiny apartment. It's like some industrial town in the middle of nowhere. Like we're the only like two foreigners there. And people would right. come and pull the pull the hair on my arm and kind of like fondle my face just to kind of see what it feels like in a really weird way uh but uh i was like okay let's go to china so showed up uh spent a few weeks with my friend but very quickly understood that like okay i'm not really interested in learning about diamond polishing factories Mm -hmm. Uh, and and also my dad doesn't own any factories so i actually need to think about how i make a living uh so i moved to beijing i just said okay let me go to beijing that's the center of attention and i'll just figure out what's going on and uh, in the process, I had a newsletter where I would write kind of about my adventures. And then I saw that someone else had a newsletter where they basically translate stuff from Chinese media to English and kind of tell people about like, what's, what's trending and what's interesting. Uh, so I just reached out to that person. I said, okay, there's another person here who seems to be interested in what I'm interested in. Uh, I just emailed him and this is 2005, early 2005. Uh, the name, the guy's name is Jeremy Goldcorn, still a good friend of mine. And I said, Hey man, like I saw your website, you know, it looks nice, but looks like you're not making any money from it. You know, I'm like, you know, I know how to design stuff. I know how to market it. I, you know, mm-hmm. I can basically help you turn it into a little business. Plus, you know, let's just meet cause we're here in the middle of the desert and, you know, you seem like a cool guy. <laughs> uh, so we met and he said, okay, who is this crazy dude? Like I was 24, 25 at the time, Uh and, and then I spent three years in the army. So 24 basically meant I just finished college. You know, I did three years until mm-hmm. 21 then 21 to 24, five. Uh, yep. So really just a guy who like doesn't have a lot of experience, but has a lot of energy. And so we said, yeah, okay, you know, come redesign my site, help me make money, whatever. So I started doing that. And then I started writing together with him on the website. And then, you know, as it happens, when you write online, people come to you, you know, they say, oh, I really like the thing that you wrote about. And what's your opinion about whatever? And sometimes there are serious people, you know, some analysts from a big bank or like some investor who's like just doing market research about something. And since no one else is writing about it, but you are, then they find you. Uh, And even if they don't get to you through that, you just refer them to it. You just say, hey, you know, by the way, I've been writing about whatever this market for 10 years or sometimes three months, but in a place as dynamic as China, Nobody else has been doing it for longer. So they're like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. th- this guy's been doing it for only three months, but we can't find anyone else who's been doing it for longer. So let's just ask him what's his opinion. Uh, and that ties me back to where we are today with crypto, for example, where, you know, some of the leading voices have not have been around for barely a year,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: there's just nobody else who's been around for longer than that. Or obviously some people are, have been doing it for 10 years, but they're usually like boring or like too technical or too biased. Uh, so, but to go back to China, so yeah. And then, you know, Jeremy and I just said, he had a little advertising agency that did only like print and offline stuff. And he said, okay, you actually seem to know all this internet thing, which sounds really weird. But even in 2005, which is not ancient history, most people had you know, just didn't know, oh, Google advertising, what's that? Right. Or like, you know, right? newsletters, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he was like, why don't we offer our clients this kind of stuff as well, you know. We have big clients like IKEA or some big hotel chains or airlines. Let's ask them if they need some stuff. So we started doing that together, um, and increasingly, a lot of my clients were real estate related people. So you know, either people are developing stuff, or, or again, retailers or hotel chains or people that have something to do with real estate, and. I started helping them first with whatever it is that I was officially doing, which is like, oh, let's build you a website or let's make you an investor presentation and, you know, localize it to this market. Uh, But increasingly, they started asking me for stuff that I wasn't officially selling. Like, hey, why don't you come with us on this trip and have a look at this piece of land and tell us what you think? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. we trust your opinion or remember that presentation you help us make or like these messages you wrote for our website why don't you come with us to the meeting with the bank and you tell them what you think or why don't you come with us to see this investor and you tell him about this market research that you've done for us because you know you're really right. passionate about it and know it so just like that you know you have expertise and even if you're not the greatest expert in the world if people you know trust you feel comfortable with you they like the way you tell it uh, and especially in a dynamic environment, then you know they, they just go with it. And obviously, if you're doing it well, then they just keep coming to you. So I, I did that. Ended up doing it for ten years. And uh, ultimately, one of my clients said, "Hey, you know, we, we like you. Why don't you just come? You know, we're actually going to invest a lot of money in this country now. Why don't you just come and be part of our team? You know, we have like the legal people, the finance people, the the general management people." the the construction people, but we need somebody like you, whatever it is that you are, you know, business development, marketing, market research, whatever it is that you are. We need we need somebody like you, even if mm-hmm. we didn't think that we do. Um, and then, within that company, I had to like build my own role and kind of like define what is it that I actually do and and fight fight for resources in a way because the engineers usually got. <laughs> were technically in charge of things and then I would come and push back and convince everyone to do, to do it differently and everyone would get annoyed but I think ultimately it usually drove to, uh, to positive decisions. Uh, not necessarily because I was always right but this tension between like okay the financial engineering view of the world and then the kind of more like customer-centric hmm. market-oriented and also kind of like cultural-oriented uh, view. Uh, so that's just one example. Sorry. It was a really long answer.
0: <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, I love, I love long answers. This is the platform for long answers. Yeah. Your, your, your background and really that whole story, it sounds like the definition for, um, for events that could lead to imposter syndrome. And the only reason mm-hmm. I say that is because you're a clear outsider, right? Coming into a, for even, even today, largely unknown, to a lot of outsiders in China and you're writing about this and you said you know you've only spent a few months digging into kind of the opportunities you see here so to me those are kind of the ingredients for someone to develop severe imposter syndrome and i want to know like if 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 that thought ever crept into your mind if you ever had any doubts like man like why are these people especially when you start like allocating capital to people right because it is it is one element to consult and really not have that risk right that actual skin in the game as Taleb says that 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 skin in the game risk but now people say look I want you to manage some money what what, was there any imposter syndrome there that crept in you're like oh shoot like now this is legit and maybe you know like maybe that imposter syndrome crept in
1: this is a wonderful question and I think you know it's great that you kind of that this is what you're reading out of this story because you're 100% correct. Uh, the doubts <clears throat> were there, are still there, I think will always be there. Uh, but I've, I've found a few ways to, uh, to kind of mitigate, mitigate those issues. I think one, by going to an extreme situation to begin with, I really know for certain that whatever it is that I know or don't know, there's really, there are few people that know anymore than i do you know so by being this crazy guy who moved to china on his own not like some guy who was sent by his company and kind of you know, yeah. still lives in a bubble but like just a crazy guy who just moved to china and worked in a factory and then showed up in beijing and really you know lives in the trenches and meets people and see how right. stuff works and takes the bus and you know takes people to lunch and dinner and gets drunk and lives the life i knew that you know i at least know something that somebody doesn't know you know i'm not the world's greatest expert on china but but i see something that most people don't see uh, so that's one thing i just put myself in situations where i can be unique and where i can do stuff that only i'm willing to do which gives me an advantage already second is i just do a lot of homework especially back then you know i knew that if i walk into a meeting i know everything that anyone could possibly know about it. I would ask all the questions in advance. I would try to read whatever I could read in advance. Mm -hmm. So even if there's a lot that I didn't know, I knew that like whatever it is that I could know, at least I I did the homework and I can feel comfortable. Uh, And I did that to an extreme degree, you know, so like if I'm flying to some province and I'm meeting like the governor or like a mayor of some city, I know that I was there already twice before I even had that meeting. That person might not even know. He would think, Oh, I'm welcoming you to my city. And let me tell you about it. I've been there already twice. I met everyone. I took the girl in the department store for for dinner. I took the taxi driver for lunch. I did like whatever I could ask. I could ask. Ideally, I even spoke to some of the people who work for him and I know exactly who's doing what and who's sleeping with who and who's stealing from whatever. And uh, you know, I would know that I'm like super prepared. Yeah. Uh, Third, I always like to bring it back to reality, you know, because our mind, both for the better and for the worse, I think we can fantasize things we can think that we're idiots we can think that we're omnipotent. I try to build my life in a way that constantly gives me feedback from reality. That that you know that, that gives me measurable feedback, or that forces me to put stuff in front of other people and hear what they think. And obviously, writing is a big part of it. You know, I just have an idea, so I put it out there, and the beauty of the internet, you know, like the cartoon. Oh wait, I can't go to sleep. Somebody's wrong on the internet, right? <laughs> yeah. there's like, so there's always going to be somebody there to correct you or to point you in a certain direction. And even if they're wrong. They will battle test you. They'll give you these objections that you'll probably hear in the offline world as well. So you know, you do that, and then you kind of get a sense of okay, what do I know? What do I don't know? Uh, another aspect of that is is education. I mean, I know that people, including me, are kind of not valuing universities and higher education as much anymore. But one thing I did, you know, I went and I got my master's degree at a really good school, or I did like some short certificate programs in some good schools. Uh, And that allows you to be in the same room with some of the smartest people in the world or allegedly smartest people in the world. And then you just see, okay, what do these people actually know? Where do I, how, how, you know, what do I know that they don't? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what can I do to be better? What can I learn from them? What can they learn from me? Just to, and to be honest with yourself about it, you know, just to say, okay. And then to try to take all of that back to whatever it is that you do and say, listen, yeah, okay. I've done the homework. I'm in a situation where anyway I don't have a lot of competition to begin with because I'm doing something radical. and I've been in the room with people, you know, I know that I can stand on my own two feet and that mm-hmm. you know that I know what I know and I know what I don't know. There's nobody out there in the world that knows you know something. you know I mean, I'm just another human being, and we all are. I think one one of the realizations that you have as you grow up and as you kind of move up the ranks whatever it is that you're doing is that everyone is just a human being you know that boss that was amazing and always knows everything yeah he's also an idiot in some situation and his wife makes him go take out the garbage and he makes mistakes and it's like yeah okay you know and that's maybe the last kind of pillar of dealing with imposter syndrome is just having humility to say listen I'm just a guy at the end of the day Mm -hmm. I'm not pretending to be anything else i can tell you exactly what i've done to get to where i am what i've learned where i've been if you find that valuable and you think that it's enough listen to me if not that's fine you know tell, tell me something i don't know and then mm. we'll continue from there
0: yeah that was that was great i'm 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 glad you kind of went down that rabbit hole and, and broke out into different pillars uh, before we go into the next kind of topic you've spent a ton of time in china <clears throat> obviously what are maybe one or two big misunderstandings that outsiders um, just don't grasp about China? Because, again, the media, for, for what it is, paints a certain picture about China, and that may or may not be the actual reality there. Um, it could be, it could be not. Uh, so what are, what are some things from like a boots-on-the-ground perspective that are just blatantly misrepresented um, that you think people should know? So
1: the first one is the assumption that anyone even knows anything about China. You know, like I, I spent 10 years there. Never mind what I knew about the country, even in my own company, to tell you that I had any idea what people in different departments and offices were actually doing or what everyone's interests were and, mm. and who really worked for us and who really, you know, was there to to serve all sorts of other interests. I can't say that I have an idea. But I think this, the second thing probably is is two facets of the same coin that are contradictory but i think on the one hand china is much more free and much more dynamic and much more open and liberal than some people imagine you know it's full of people that are super energetic super capitalistic and like inherently in their culture even before you you talk about modern china just like people that you know that like to trade that like to do business that always think about you know how can i move ahead how can i take care of my family Mm -hmm. uh and super creative, you know, people just come up with, with, with the craziest stuff. Uh, and again, especially in the context of like business and, you know, how, how to make money and how to, to come up with cool ideas. And on the other hand, exactly the opposite of it, I think it's impossible to to measure or describe how involved the government is in every little thing, because most of it is, is, is again, it's in the air, it's implicit. It's not like, you know, there's somebody standing there and telling you, oh, don't talk about this or don't do that. But just both in terms of its financial interests in different things, uh, in terms of its impact on education, uh, in terms of its impact on on the culture that, you know, just most people that are alive today in China grew up under the the Chinese Communist Party and learned all sorts of things at school and and have all sorts of assumptions about the world. Uh, So the, the strength of the government and its involvement there is is immeasurable and, and often we see people that are like oh like for example TikTok, you know they say oh yeah it's TikTok, but you know it's not like a government company so what's the big deal they're just like you know maybe they have some shareholders but even if they don't have shareholders i mean existing within that system means that the government has like immense power mm-hmm. uh, over you as a company and as an individual um uh, and and yeah, and I, I ultimately find it to be quite sad. You know, I'm, I'm, I think you know, people deserve to be free and make their own mistakes and live in their own messed up countries, uh, and and understand what's messed up about them and, and try to fix them themselves and not always succeed. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it was always a dilemma for me living there. It's like you know, is what I'm doing contributing to to making it better or is it mm. contributing to making people oppressed? yeah uh and again i didn't go there to change the world i just went there to look for adventures but still there was there was a time in the first half of my being there that you know i really felt like hey we're opening shopping malls we're employing people we're teaching them how to use the internet we're introducing them to all sorts of habits that are maybe silly like you know oh let's go shopping or let's go to the movie but also that kind of make them appreciate daily life and their own freedom and their own ability to choose so maybe we're doing something good uh but at some point, I also started to feel like, yeah, I don't, th- I don't think this thing is going where we, we think it is going, and maybe we're just like the bread and circuses, and you know, we're just we're just entertaining them while somebody else is in charge and distracting them from stuff that they should be worried about. Um, so at least for me personally, I can't say it was the main reason, but you know, when I left China, part of a part of it was that that feeling that like, okay, I don't think this place is going to get any better as far as. Uh, you know, freedom is concerned of my own personal life for my ability to actually impact it. Uh, so I should just move on to, uh, to other things.
0: Knowing all of that, how disadvantaged are US investors when it comes to making investment decisions about public equities over there? So let's say like Alibaba or JD.com. Um, I, I, I get the sense that People think that because these companies are so big and, and because so many other popular investors are in them, that they're quote unquote safer bets in China. But from being there and from living there and seeing how the world operates, is it even worth the time for a US investor to really understand the business um, given the various risks?
1: So we're talking about skin in the game. Personally, I don't invest in Chinese companies, I don't feel comfortable. Right. Uh, Doing that, so I mean that, that I guess tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, I mean, like yeah.
0: it tells like you've been there, you've lived there, yeah, and you know you don't feel comfortable. And again, that's
1: not like an anti-China thing. I'm not saying yeah. no one else should, but I'm saying when I look at it, I'm like, hey, I, I'm I'm pretty confident that what I'm hearing is is not the actual information that I need to know. Second, the political risk is huge, and and people try to ignore it, but we've seen some prominent examples of it just in the last year. And from both directions, whether it is, you know, Trump deciding to ban uh, TikTok mm-hmm. because of the kind of, you know, geopolitical issues, or if it's Alibaba disappearing, it's, uh, you know, chairman and CEO for a while. Uh, or, or, you know, even more mundane things like, you know, the Women's Tennis Associations. Yeah, I was about out. to
0: say, what was it, Peng Shui? What, yeah, Peng
1: Shui. Right? There's just huge political risk there. Uh, and I think people like to tell themselves that, no, oh, okay, it's not really a risk and the stock maybe is back up or whatever, but, but yeah, but you know, it, it's there, I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, and ultimately I'm also not comfortable with, I think you know, with technology transfer, with copyright transfers to, to nations that are, that are increasingly actively hostile to, to, to what we're trying to do. And I say that while being fully cognizant of you know, America's shortcomings and mistakes Mm -hmm. and not being naive about politics and knowing that you know a lot of it even in the best times means you know oppressing some people and using military force and uh surveillance and a lot of stuff that i'm worried about here at home uh but still i don't think that it compares and i think that both at home and abroad when there are things that are explicitly in front of us and we know that they're wrong we just shouldn't do them of course there's some situations where things are not clear uh but uh but yeah, I, I prefer that, the, you know, the best technology would be in, in the hands of of America at the end of the day. <laughs> this is still, of, of all the, the bad options out there, and America is a bad one as well, I think it's still the best option. And and when I look at the world, it's still the only hope for, for, for you know, for keeping some freedoms and some rights in check, not just for us who live here, but for everyone else. Mm-hmm. So, And I don't take it for granted either, so...
0: And go, going from kind of one risk or perceived risk to the next, you wrote a piece titled, I mean, it was a very provocative title, and uh, I actually tweeted about it when I saw, I think it was Packy McCormick that retweeted it, and I saw the title, and I, I think I did a quote retweet, and I was like, this is the top, um, and the title was In Praise of Ponzi's, granted, I said that. As as a joke, didn't read a single word of it when I tweeted it, which probably is more of a reflection on me than than anything. But um, I ended up, you know, I obviously I read the uh, I read the post and disclaimer for those that that don't know or, or maybe are unfamiliar. You kind of set the stage with the whole Constitution DAO and the you know public trying to buy that copy of the Constitution through 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 this Dow. So. Long story short, I got involved in that. It was my first Web3 experience, first DAO experience. I remember buying uh, like twenty-one thousand people tokens, and um, you know, when the news came out that they didn't win, I, I received those twenty-one thousand and you know into my account, and I I just redeemed them for the tokens. I didn't convert them oh, into no into into Ethereum. No, I mean it was great. It 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 it, it ended up. Them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I had like 20, 22,000 people tokens and I'm sitting there, it's Thanksgiving weekend and you know, we're out traveling. And, and so I'm, I'm in the hotel room and I'm just sitting there. It's one morning. I'm like, you know, let me check my Coinbase wallet. Like, I don't remember why I did. I was just like, let me, let me check it. So I look in there and you know, the balance that was there last week has now like 10, 15 X. And I'm like, this is like, this has got to be wrong. It's like, this is a glitch. And so I like refresh refresh my app. I close it, refresh it, open it back up, and there's the amount. It's still there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like what happened? Lo and behold, the people tokens, which seemingly had zero value because the whole mission failed, skyrocketed. Like at one point, I think they're up like 30X or, or, or whatnot. So I cashed out quickly. I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm getting out. So it was my first dip into like a Ponzi crypto DAO scheme here. But I say all of that because... You use that as a springboard to talk about how Ponzi schemes might end up being the future business model of these solo uh, corporations, if I'm, if I'm to understand it correctly. So why don't you kind of take the reins from there and, 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 and give us kind of the synopsis on, on why you wrote that?
1: Yeah, so you mentioned, you know, the Constitution DAO, which basically issued a token named PEOPLE and allowed people to buy this token with the promise that, hey, we're going to try to pull all of our money together, buy a copy, a rare copy of the U.S. Constitution. And then if you're a token holder, then you can vote on what we actually do with this copy. Where where are we going to put it? How are we going to take care of it? How are we going to use it for for public benefit? Uh, And of course, by having a token, it's also just really cool because you can say, hey, you know, I was part of this group that tried to buy the Constitution. It's the first time that people of the internet just kind of come together and use crypto to kind of buy something so prominent and you know it was all over the the news and tv and and media all over the world so it's like really cool you know uh then they failed to win the auction so you can say okay this is where the story ends you know let's let's just give everyone's money back and, and forget about it uh it was all fun but what actually happened as you mentioned is that a few days after the fact the value of the tokens tri- started shooting up. Now, what that means is that somebody else on the other side actually wants to buy those tokens, that there's a growing demand for them. And you can ask yourself, okay, why is there a growing demand for them? Maybe this, maybe this DAO is still gonna do something else with those tokens, but there wasn't any indication of that. Mm-hmm. And, and what is most likely to happen is that just, people read about this story, they thought it's such a cool story, so they wanted to own the tokens as well, whether it is as a souvenir, or again, to have a story to tell. Uh, I know that in some countries in China, for example, it became kind of like a new meme stock, you know, just like GME or, or Dogecoin, like people are like, oh, yeah, I own like people tokens and, you know, for yeah. no particular reason. But at its essence, it basically means that people didn't necessarily want to buy whatever practical thing this DAO was pressing to do. They just want to buy a piece of the story. said, OK, there's a story here. Everybody's talking about it. There's a good chance that something else will happen in this story, that even more people will hear about it and want a piece of it, or that, you know, this group will suddenly do some amazing other thing together and these tokens will suddenly play a part of that. So I just want to buy a piece of it just because I believe that this is a cool story. And I believe that other people who hear about it after me will want to buy a piece of it as well, which means that probably the value of my tokens is going to go up now yes this is you know the 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 definition of a ponzi scheme you know i'm going to buy something not because it has any inherent value but just because i think somebody else is going to pay more for it uh tomorrow Mm -hmm. and it sounds extreme but when you think about it it's not as extreme as it sounds for a couple of reasons one you know we live in a world where that is dominated by basically negative interest rates which means that you know by definition if you try to save money you get penalized and you're like incentivized to go and invest in stuff uh just with the hope that it will keep going up just because more money will be printed behind you and and somebody else will buy it so it's kind of like the greater greater fool theory uh but like applied to the whole economy so so one so that's like one reason like okay it's in itself buying people DAO tokens doesn't seem like A great financial idea but when you look at all the other options that people have okay what else do you want to buy like tesla stock at like whatever multiple they're trading or even apple or you know office buildings what is it in the world that you look at now that doesn't look like overpriced or like that it's about to get completely demolished by Mm -hmm. by technology or something else and by that measure you're like okay maybe this is yeah maybe this is a bad idea but maybe it's not the worst idea that i've i've ever seen Uh, So I call that the Tina economy, you know, that there is no alternative. We basically live in a world where everyone has to take crazy risks and do stupid stuff. And often the the stupidest thing is the most the more reasonable thing, because, you know, buying buying a General Motors stock or whatever your grandfather did in order to to be financially responsible. I'm not sure what's crazier, you know, to buy Dogecoin or to buy, you know, a General Motors uh, share or government bonds that promise to basically not give you any return indefinitely. Uh, so that's so that's one reason. The second reason is that when you really dive into this Ponzi kind of multi-level marketing thing, it actually makes sense. So I used Gangnam style as an example of of an economic product mm-hmm. uh, of the 21st century. So you know, Gangnam style, some guy in Korea made a song, put it on the internet, obviously well produced, et etc. He's like a professional. Uh, and then some people heard it, they liked it, they shared it. And because they liked it and shared it, more people heard it and liked it and shared it. And on it went, and at some point, of course, the YouTube algorithm identifies this kind of initial momentum. The algorithm mm-hmm. identifies it and then amplifies it. It says, okay, this thing looks like it's gonna be cool because a hundred right. people saw it. So I'm gonna show it to another thousand people and then another million. And of course, TikTok and Facebook and Twitter, they all work along the same lines. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately this song reaches a billion views makes a few million dollars for the creators, makes even more million dollars for YouTube. And then it also fizzles away, but we'll come back to the fizzle in a second. Now, every person that liked it or shared it initially actually contributed to its initial success and even was critical. And and every person, like anyone who ever liked it contributed something, those that did it earlier contributed more. And today you actually have no way to compensate them for that basically saying okay you know then that song got lucky some people liked it there's another song that didn't get lucky uh, that's fine you know you shouldn't expect any reward for it yeah but we're moving to a world where more and more products act or, or businesses emerge in that same way you know they start from a meme on the internet if enough people like them they become successful and, and finance you know a rocket launch or a new car or something much more substantial than just a video and if nobody cares about them then nothing happens and basically that means that it's a very risky world because you're increasingly reliant on luck you know when you post a song on YouTube the most popular song on YouTube is not the best song on YouTube if you try to measure it objectively it's not like the, the one that costs the most money to produce or the ones that, that has the biggest stars it just there's a lot of random elements that play into these things of what goes viral and what ends up being successful, yeah. which means that you're increasingly reliant on luck and which means that you're in an increasingly risky world. Now, how do you do risk that process? How do you say, Hey, if I want to launch something, how can I make sure that it succeeds or like at least increase my odds? And one way of doing that is to say, okay, instead of just waiting for people to maybe like my thing or share it, I'm going to incentivize them i'm going to say okay let's ensure that hundred thousand people watch this and i'm going to pay them to watch it i'm going to pay them to like it i'm going to pay them to share it and not just pay them but actually give them a share in this product and its success which means that they're fully incentivized to make sure that this thing becomes as, as popular as possible and because i'm doing that the odds of this thing actually becoming successful are much higher now so of course you cannot guaranteed, but they're much higher than just uploading something to YouTube. Uh, So it basically shows you that this economic of Ponzi makes much more sense than, you know, it's not just a crazy thing, but it's basically something that more and more products will need to do in order to ensure that they even have a chance to succeed, let alone actually succeed. Like you need to harness the crowd. You need to incentivize it properly uh, because otherwise you, you barely even have a chance And of course, that's where crypto comes in, you know, that it allows you to build these models with tokens and to like very cheaply kind of create these huge incentive schemes for people and pool resources and automatically compensate people based on kind of programmatic actions that they take in the digital world uh, for whatever it is that they did. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) How do you then turn that because you know we can we can call a Ponzi scheme we can call it mar, you know multi-level marketing um and you know the uh, those obviously have like a very sour connotation to them when 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 you first hear them so how do you create how do you turn that uh model which in effect is along the lines of paul graham's you know do things that don't scale right where you're just giving people whether it's you know a free product or you're you know, doing things that cost a lot up front for a very small investment. So there's a lot of you know, kind of do things that don't scale early stage. How do you go from that then to a sustainable business model and to one that can you know continue to grow without needing that external funding? And the reason that I ask that is because you're seeing a lot of uh, VC, you know, venture capital subsidized luxuries, whether it's ten minute grocery delivery or whether it's You know certain products that just don't make economic sense, but because the money is so cheap and because people are just throwing money at these schemes, they're able to survive. Um, So how do you how do you bridge that gap?
1: So a few ways. One, it's a question whether doesn't scale still applies to to this kind of thing, because in the past, if I would tell you, hey, Taylor Swift, you know, before you launch your next album, go talk to ten thousand people make sure that they all do the same thing at the same exact minute that they listen to your song and share it, get everyone's bank details, transfer each of them like a dollar and a half for it. Then a week later, see if the song is doing well, give them another $2. It's just going to be too expensive, too complicated, but with crypto, you can do it in like, you know, two minutes. You can just set a smart contract, say, Hey, anyone who wants to do this thing, go share it on YouTube, then put a link to the thing that you shared so we can verify that you actually shared it, then automatically you get money and then automatically you get even more money later if something happens. Mm. If nothing happens, then you get nothing, but you know, you basically bought a lottery ticket that didn't cost you anything. and Maybe it works. So just the transaction costs, the setup costs, the coordination costs are incredibly lower uh, now with crypto and crypto plus the internet and social media. The second is... Wait, let me... <laughs> Let me remind myself of the question again, but what
0: makes it scalable? And I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like this only works with the solo corporation. Again, I could be wrong, but like this sort of scheme where you've got this one person doing this one thing um, it's very linear in that sense, right? It's not this complex organization of humans that you're trying to solve a certain problem. It's like, Hey, I've got this one artist. I did this one thing and, um, it seems easier to do this sort of thing in that sense. Like, like do, does does this model, even in like the Web3 crypto space, like let's say that that ends up being the future, like does that model work from an organizational level?
1: I think it can. I mean, you know, what, what DAOs essentially allow you to do is to have to allow a bunch of people who don't know anything about each other and don't have to trust each other to put a lot of money together in the same place and to define rules by which this money will be spent. Uh, and redistributed to them. Uh, so on the one hand, it's really simple and you can say, okay, of course, this is not a corporation. This is just like a shared bank account with like some little algorithm on top. But on the other right. hand, you can say, yes, it's, it's just a shared bank account with an algorithm on top but you can apply it to a million things that you couldn't do without it. Uh, so one of the things that DAOs can do is vote together and decide, hey, we're going to hire a CEO or we're going to hire engineers or we're going to do a marketing campaign. Like we we can do whatever it is that we do with a company and whatever shareholders or board members do in a company. So I think the focus at the moment is too much on like, oh, DAOs are democratizing everything and everyone's gonna vote on everything. But of course, this is not gonna be efficient. This is not the future of business. You need leadership, you need expertise. Uh, It's just a different governance mechanism but also by coming together it allows you to to exploit weaknesses in existing structures in the world and it allows you just to redefine how things work i'll I'll give you like an example Mm -hmm. let's say there's a lottery you know i i just bought a lottery ticket the biggest prize is like 200 million dollars so i can pull together with all of the people that want to buy a lottery ticket we can spend 180 million dollars on buying all of the possible combinations or at least 80% or whatever it is that is most efficient for us uh, statistically so there is a chance that we're all going to just lose whatever it is that we put it in but there's probably a you know 70% chance or 90% chance that we're going to win the whole thing and then to define that okay if one of our tickets wins the 200 million dollars I'm just going to spread it to everyone you know instead of taking it to myself so you you kind of exploited something that already existed but you just said okay i i specify now how i think it should be distributed and all of these people agree with me and now we're going to create an automatic way to distribute it differently with these tools and it's barely going to cost us anything to to do that which is why it's suddenly efficient and cost effective to do it uh now of course this is kind of a silly example but you can do you can apply it to more and more situations in the world where you say okay if someone owns this office building what if all of us own it instead and we run it a little differently or decide that we want to share the resources differently, just because we think that's better for society or that's that's in line with our ideology. And of course it can be used for bad as well. We can, you know, you can use it to just promote certain groups or certain people over others, or Mm -hmm. if someone is more popular, they can take more money or whatever it is that you can convince people to agree to, which history teaches us that, you know, people will agree to almost anything if you bullshit them uh, well enough. Uh, And there's another cute and more, less extreme version of that. There's a a crypto DAP called pull together, which allows you to basically put your money, lock it down, like in a savings account together with a thousand other people, and then take all of the interest that that money accrued during that month or year, and then do a simple kind of randomized thing. And then one of you gets all of the interest. So all of you get your money back, but only one of you gets whatever, you know, whatever all of you earn together from interest. So you know, if we do it with a million dollars, you you know you earn two percent. Let's say you have twenty thousand dollars, and I just put a hundred dollars in that bucket, suddenly I, I can get twenty thousand dollars, but worst case, I I don't lose anything, I still get my hundred dollars back. Huh. So again, it's just a way to rewrite the rules without having to change the, the you know the rules of physics or gravity or basic economics, it's just saying, yeah. okay, we just decide to distribute it differently. Uh so again, once we start playing with those ideas, they can go to all sorts of directions and create all sorts of new incentive schemes and allow people to take as much risk as they're comfortable taking in exchange for as much reward as they're willing to to stake their
0: neck for. Uh, Yeah. Do you think DAOs give humans too much of a benefit of a doubt that they'll do the right thing when it comes to... Uh, making decisions, even creating an algorithm. So for instance, like the lottery example, right? Maybe that's a far out example, but let's just go with it. So, you know, you pull together $180 million, you've got a 75% chance, 80% chance of winning. Say you hit the, you know, you actually win the lottery. And then all of a sudden this algorithm has to distribute these assets. How much trust are these individuals baking into the fact that someone's got to write that algorithm and they could easily go in and say, you know, hey, just kidding. Like, let's just revert all that winning straight to my account. Because maybe, yeah, so, maybe, maybe I'm being too cynical, though, right? Like, maybe, maybe I'm being a little bit too pessimistic.
1: No, you can't be too cynical when, you know, when money's on the line and, <laughs> and it's the internet. But I think, you know, one, the more... More of it that happens on chain, the easier it is to trust. That's why, mm-hmm. you know, the pull together thing, for example, everyone just uses their crypto wallet in order to basically lock down a certain number of tokens. And that goes into a smart contract that then invests that in all sorts of other smart contracts or kind of yield bearing crypto instruments. Right. And then it brings back all their interest and then distributes it. So everything happens in a way that can really be connected into a smart contract and, and automated fully. So you you almost don't need to trust anyone. You do have to trust the initial algorithm, which you can audit and, and look at. But beyond that, whatever it says that it will do, it will probably do. It does get much more complicated once there is an off-chain element. So, you know, yeah, if you're saying, okay, it's the national lottery, someone still has to go there and pick up the money, let's say, and cash the check, and then transfer it to some crypto wallet that then automatically distributes it. How do I know that this person will do it? I don't. You know, so I, I have to maybe build mechanisms uh, in order to uh, to ensure that. But yeah, but ultimately, if you want to interact with the real world, uh, that, that that does increase the uncertainty. And I think more generally, to answer your initial question, yes, I think most people underestimate uh, or are naive about what DAOs can do, and even just about what technology can do. Just the assumption that some technology, not even just Bitcoin or blockchain, but the assumption that any technology could be inherently more democratic or more equitable uh, i think is a dangerous and Mm -hmm. naive assumption Mm -hmm. Uh, on the other hand i do you know i am a technological determinist and like i do think that some technologies have some inherent tendencies but they're usually complex and we only understand them after a really long time like hundreds Mm -hmm. of years sometimes so to just look at something and say okay just because it allows people to vote Does it mean that everyone is just going to participate now and be engaged and fully informed and make the right decision? No. Uh, Just because it allows us to distribute the rewards to everyone, does it mean that we are going to distribute them to everyone? No. And, you know, the internet itself is a great example of that. You know, we're like, oh, everyone's going to have access to information and be an informed voter and, you know, be much more involved. We're seeing that the opposite happened. You know, people are like just now there's more room for conspiracy theories. People are just kind of reading only what they want to read about and what makes them happy and they're not exposed to anything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, democracy is becoming more polarized and, and that too, I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing in itself because I think it's a process. And like all of the craziness that we've seen only in America in the last five years, there's a lot of bad in it, but also it shows you the vibrance of America that crazy Mm -hmm. stuff can happen. People can emerge out of nowhere, become president just because they're a TV star But at the same time, the world didn't end. And these people can get kicked out. And somebody else can come. And then they can Mm. get kicked out as well. And in the process, we're all kind of like trying to figure out uh, what to do. And then the social media companies become kind of more restrictive and censor a little more and experiment with that. And maybe it's good, and maybe it's bad. But before we can even realize whether it's good or bad, some other power structures are emerging to take away money and eyeballs away from those traditional social media companies so there is a certain dynamism uh, that, you know, and here you can really choose, okay, I, do I want to be optimistic about where it's going or pessimistic, but it's clear that it's dynamic and it's changing all the time. It's not like yeah. locking itself into to any particular direction. But yeah, I think most people are naive about DAOs and or too negative about it either. I mean, the people yeah. who say, oh, this doesn't matter are also wrong, I think. Uh, you know, that's why I call my crypto course Hype Free Crypto, because I'm bullish about crypto and I think people should learn about it. But obviously, there's a lot of bullshit on both sides and uh, or at least ignorance on both sides. But
0: I, mean, I think there's also an element where and again, this is me trying to wrap my head around the viability of such things like DAOs, especially because you have, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we've evolved to structure hierarchies for ourselves to make these Mm -hmm. decisions, you know, uh, whether you call them dominance hierarchies, social hierarchies, we tend to distribute leadership and power in this rank order file, which allows us to be a little bit more efficient um, in terms of decision making. And I, one, one thing I wonder is, you know, a, it's, it sounds, you know, if, if DAOs say, you know, Hey, like we think total democratized decision-making is, better than the alternative, which is some sort of hierarchical hierarchical structure. Um, if, If that's their argument, one hand, it's tough because you're going up against millions of years of evolution, you know, setting the course of saying like, hey, this is an optimal way to kind of do these things. Obviously, there are mutations where it gets out of control on both sides. But in general, the structural hierarchies have helped us evolve to make better decisions. And so there's like a counter element to that. And I wonder if we roll the clock forward, like how much better or even how willing people are to instead of have that innate desire to create hierarchies that they'll be okay with this complete meritocracy um, and just total decentralized decision-making.
1: Yeah, and so, I mean, I know that there are some people taking the opposite position of what you just said, but I'm just Mm. going to avoid that premise altogether. I think the the promise of DAOs is not that, you know, everyone's going to, there's not going to be a hierarchy. It's, you know, DAOs, they have a core team. If they don't have one, they can hire one and vote people in and vote people out. Uh, They just present a more transparent and efficient way to do stuff that we do in corporations today. So again, you can see there's something, okay, so that means it's nothing. We can see it as like, okay, there's a slight difference here, but this difference might be radical enough that it actually enables us to do things that we couldn't do before. And I'll give you a couple of examples of what I mean. Never mind the DAO. Let's look at Apple Corporation, you know, a big yep. U.S. company. Imagine if you take Apple exactly as it is with the hierarchies, with the employees, with the management, and you just say, okay, Apple's bank account, assuming it has only one, now everyone can just look at it all the time and see exactly what comes in and what goes out and where did it go to? That's it. That's the only change. Is that a radical change in the world? You know, you, you decide, you know, maybe it's nothing. Maybe it will change business completely. Uh, I think it's a radical change. Uh, and again, and it's not the only one. Yeah. So that's just one example. Imagine an organization that runs like that, but just has that level of transparency.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Second, imagine that it keeps a database, that Facebook keeps a database with data on, you know, statistics on how Instagram posts affect uh, teenage girls. And it keeps track of it. Um, but then you know there's a big outroar over something in the news, and everyone wants access to this data, but now yep. Facebook decides that it doesn't want people to access it or that it's going to change some stuff. Imagine that it couldn't, just that it would keep all of that information at a database that is immutable and is always going to be transparent and mm-hmm. is not even under its direct control. Yep. Does that make a big difference? Again, yep. maybe it's just maybe it's just like a little, you know. Change of a little button on a database but maybe it's a big difference i think it's the big Mm -hmm. difference Uh, and to come back to a third example let's go back to constitution dow you know so a bunch of strangers i think about eighteen thousand people put together about 43.5 or something million dollars within a week uh, in order to do something that they wanted to do now you can look at it and say yeah okay crowdfunding whatever breaking news from 2008 Uh, But I'm going to ask you, and I'm not sure what the answer is. Could the same thing be done just on Kickstarter? If they just did it on Kickstarter and said, hey, guys, you know, we have this amazing idea, let's buy the Constitution, send us your money. Would they have succeeded? What do you think?
0: I think, well, if you you break the question into two parts, technically... And with the infrastructure, yes, I think they could have done the exact same thing. No, but um, could it
1: have happened? Never not theoretically. Could could some do you think it would have worked? At that point in you know, two weeks ago, whenever it happened, I don't think would it would have worked. I,
0: I I don't think it would have worked because Kickstarter doesn't have the same hype as DAO's okay. and Web3. Um, it might be deeper than just hype, right? Maybe it's the technology, maybe it's the blockchain. Um, that Kickstarter doesn't have. But I just think from a Mm -hmm. hype cycle perspective, like everybody is interested in DAOs. Like you Mm -hmm. could do that on Kickstarter, but it would just be boring. Okay.
1: So one, okay. So you you mentioned one, I agree. I don't think it would have happened on Kickstarter. It just wouldn't have happened so quickly with so much money. Uh, And there's a few reasons. One you mentioned, yeah, DAOs are cool. It sounded cool. So people wanted to be part of it. And it generated more hype. Now that in itself ties to a few practical differences because people are excited about DAOs because they technologically promise to do something that other things don't promise. Mm-hmm. But okay, there's the hype element. But then there's also those little things that that are literally in themselves, where like, okay, first I put my money into a smart contract. So I already have a wallet or I can create one really, really easily. I don't have to connect necessarily my bank account. I don't have to create an account anywhere. I don't have to give my information. There's basically a protocol already in place that has all all of that. So the DAO didn't have to like build anything. They just kind of like use these existing primitives on on Ethereum. Uh, So one, it's just really easy for me to pay. So I took a little bit of friction out. Second, I can see how much money is already in the bucket and I can see it like with 100% certainty. So it's not like a banner on a Kickstarter campaign or like an email from the organizer who says, hey guys, we're like 30% there. But I can see exactly how much money went into that contract and how quickly. Third, I can see whoever else is involved. So that influencer or whoever is shilling this specific project, I can see how much money they put in already. So again, it's not just about them telling me a story. But I actually know that they put in the money. Fourth, I have some certainty that you know my money wouldn't be invested or returned to me if nothing happens because it's in a in a smart contract. And in this case, it ended up not being true and then it didn't work as well as planned. But at least going yeah. into it, it looked uh, different. So there's a bunch of little kind of ways that it eliminates friction and increases transparency i think again each of them in themselves just like the apple or facebook example doesn't look like a big deal but when you're about to make a financial decision and i already have a wallet and all i have to do is kind of click and says yeah okay i committed to this if it ends up happening take my money if it doesn't then don't just makes it so much more so much easier and so much more transparent um which is part of the reason why there's hype about it and of course hype played a big role or maybe even the bigger role in all of this so but but the bottom line is that if this new technology can make it happen then this new technology is interesting and hype Mm -hmm. is part of it just like hype is you know a lot of nice stuff or bad stuff that happened on the internet you could have done as well and almost equally efficiently with a phone or with like a newspaper ad uh but you just didn't you know they just sometimes having a new technology gives us new metaphors and new ideas yeah. That we can think with and then come up with stuff that we're like oh actually we could have done this before but we never thought about this before and that alone i think is part of the value of new technologies that they give us ways to understand the world and to kind of metaphors to think with
0: yeah well one of the ways that it's completely different from from kickstarter because i think the more you use dows for we'll call them antiquated things like basically creating a savings account and then paying interest like that's simple on the on the curve of like possibilities what is not that simple is what you wrote about in uh, your your t- your piece clones and colonizers which basically laid out this idea of the solo founder company and you mentioned this guy in san francisco alex uh, i don't have his last name but the the story is alex created these alex tokens And what these tokens allowed people to do is if you bought them, you got a stake of 15% of his future income, as well as any gain in his, you know, quote unquote value. Right. So if he, you know, starts, let's say, you know, he's writing just on his website, he gets featured in New York times, goes on CNBC, blah, blah, blah. Like theoretically his value has increased um, so that anyone can invest in this guy. Uh, So in this world, dows makes sense right because it allows you to do things that kickstarter wouldn't so talk to us then about the significance of something like a person selling tokens in exchange for their future income like like will that become more normalized over the next five to ten years
1: yeah so i i started that piece or, or another piece on the same topic with the david bowie example from the 90s so in in the 90s, uh, a fellow, a lawyer from L.A. named David Pullman came up with this idea, which he called the Pullman Bonds, which basically allowed artists to sell rights to their future earnings to individual retail investors. And his first kind of uh, major showcase was David Bowie. He said, hey, Mr. Bowie, you know, you made a lot of money. Maybe in the future, we'll not make as much money. Uh, Or maybe you just want to take out more money out today because you want to buy a big house or send your kids to school. So I have an idea for you. Why don't we just take uh, the royalties from your first, I think, 20 albums or something Mm -hmm. and tell people that they can buy the rights to those to the cash flow from those royalties for the next 20 years uh, in exchange for, you know, whatever it is that they're willing to pay for it. And we'll just issue these bonds. So David Bowie basically did a bond offering, raised 55 million dollars, which was a lot of money, even even more even just more money. It's a lot of money. It's <laughs> just today. in general. Yeah, it's a, a lot of money, money today, but in 1995, it's probably equivalent to like 150 <laughs> or 200 million dollars. So yeah, like really a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, basically, he said, "Yeah, okay, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't mind what I'm going to make in the future. I'm happy to take my money now, or to create new stuff. But for all my old stuff, I'm happy to share it with people." Yep. Uh, and, you know, and that the, the bonds were traded. They were rated by all the ratings agencies. And there were a lot of lawyers and investment bankers and, and David Bowie himself. Uh, and, and it worked. But, of course, back then, you could only do it if you're David Bowie because you had to be, like, really, really famous. And you had yeah. to, like, jump through all sorts of hoops and paperwork and lawyers and banks.
0: Probably had, like, but high net worth us, stipulations. Had to yeah. be a qualified investor, all that jazz.
1: Yeah. But what crypto allows us to do is that any kid... And, and Alex uh, Mass Manager is a great example. You know, it's just like a, a kid in France that wanted to move to Silicon Valley. He had an idea for a startup, yep. and he said, "Hey guys, I need whatever, probably twenty five thousand dollars or some kind of relatively low sum, to begin with. If you believe in me, why don't you invest in my career? And I promise that for the next two years, I'm going to pay you whatever fifty percent of anything I make, or like twenty percent of anything above one hundred thousand dollars, or whatever it is that I need to live. Right, uh, and." Plus later, if you want like to have more fun, I'm also going to let you vote on like some silly stuff about what what I should eat for dinner or whether I should see that girl again, or, you know, whatever I can do to gamify it and and pick your your interest. Uh, And it's interesting because one, again, blockchains make it really cheap and simple for anyone to issue those tokens and to build those incentive schemes without needing the lawyers, without needing the bankers. which means that the barrier to entry to this type of behavior is much lower. So even if you just need thousand dollars, you can just tweet about it and maybe somebody will give you the thousand dollars. You don't need right. to like the David Bowie interviewed on, on CNN for it. Uh, but I think from a broader perspective, there's two reasons why this model is, is important. Now, one, we, we started our conversation by talking about modern careers and how risky and volatile there are and how, you know, This option of just saying, hey, I'm just going to go study something safe and then work in in like a safe company for 40 years and then retire. And when I retire, I'm actually going to have enough money uh, to to sustain myself. And the Mm -hmm. government is also going to support me because it invested in stuff. Uh, All of that is not true anymore for a lot of people, and it's increasingly less true. So our careers themselves are becoming riskier. And wherever there's risk, there's this need to socialize that risk to say, okay, my career is really dangerous. I wish I could, you know, instead of just jumping into this big ocean all on my own, maybe some people want to share this risk, you know, because they believe in me. So they can give me a little money now or like give me a safety net to make sure that if I fail, I'm still going to be able to live or try again. Uh, and of course, I'm happy to share whatever it is that, that I'll get from this with them in return and now we can actually contractualize it with cryptos, I think from the individual perspective there's a growing demand for this type of stuff. And then I think from an investor perspective from kind of like a broader market perspective there's also a growing demand for that because we mentioned that we're living in the Tina economy most investments are just not interesting or guaranteed to lose you money or like not to keep you ahead of inflation. So there's a growing interest in finding alternative investments That's why more and more pension funds are investing in in startups and in crypto and in real estate. And like even stuff like real estate used to be considered an alternative investment and kind of a risky thing for pension funds. 20 years ago, they would just buy, you know, bonds and and stocks. But now more and more of their allocation goes to all sorts of alternatives. Uh, And the reason that they're doing that is that they know, okay we're not going to get the returns that we need in those traditional things. So we have to look for new investment products. Uh, And it starts with like, okay, let's invest in technology companies. Then it goes into, okay, let's invest in non-public technology companies, basically startups before they go public. Then it goes to, okay, let's invest like seed stage and like earlier, like even riskier stuff because we're looking for returns. And very quickly, you see how that gets to, okay, let's just invest in some guy who might have a good idea one day and make us a lot of money. Uh, But then because that guy might fail, let's invest in a thousand guys and girls and other That are the same, and just put them in a bucket, financialize it. And then, you know, if one of them hits, we're going to get our return. And if none of them hit, then we're not, but there's a high likelihood that they will. So you're basically turning people's careers into like financial products that can then be bundled together and sold, just like, you know, bundles of houses or mortgages are sold today. In the financial world, so we're seeing that there's strong demand for both sides. People need to share their own personal risk and to socialize it, and investors are looking to invest in new things that at least have the hope of bringing some sort of return. Uh, so these anecdotal things about this Alex fellow, I think, are much more significant than you know just like a funny little story about what somebody did with tokens. I think they tell us something about the future.
0: I've got a, I've got a couple comments. The first, the first one. Well, I've got one comment and then and then a question. The first comment. Um... Is well, actually, no. Just kidding. They're both questions. When I think about them in my head, (laughs) the first question is: Do we want to live in a world that is so obsessed with like the me economy, right? Where everything's about me? Like, I this guy named his own token, and it's like buy me, invest in me, and maybe you know maybe again, it's just my my personal philosophy. But it's like, do we? It's it's almost like artificial intelligence, right? Where like we can create something that either can go too far and we know it can go too far. If we, if we, if we input the correct, you know, algorithms and stuff, we've got the power to make this go too far. Is, is this something similar where like maybe the end state is just this big selfish game and do we really want to create that? And so that's, that's the first question. And then the second question is, let's roll the clock forward like five to 10 years and this stuff doesn't take off. And, um, you know, this idea of, de- you know, uh, spreading out uh, the risk for someone's career is just not, you know, it, it, it doesn't stick. What are those reasons why it wouldn't stick in that world?
1: All right. So just the first part of your question is a huge question. Um, an opportunity to dive into a really big and interesting theme, I think. Yeah. So you mentioned before you know we're biologically maybe programmed to seek hierarchy to want to be part of a group to to seek leadership and that's true and i think that economics and biology basically when you strip them down they're, they're actually the same field you know they just look at how yep. animals behave yep. uh, and you know what are they looking for and what they value more and why and the same is true for groups, the same is true for individuals. So one way to start answering this question is to say it's always just about me. You know that mm-hmm. that's just that's just all there is. You know I'm here. Yeah. I'm trying to survive. I'm the center of attention. I'm the center of my own concerns. Always. It doesn't matter how what I tell myself or how I you know package it or how I explain it to people. This this is what I'm interested in. Right. Uh, so and I'm looking for that safety all the time, and that's what drives me. You know. Yep. So that's one. Um, second, what happens if it doesn't take, uh, no, sorry, let let me dive a little more deeply into it. I think one of the most interesting things that crypto enables us to do and the internet enables us to do, and generally the lowering of transaction costs enables us to do is that it takes a lot of stuff that is implicit in the world and it makes it explicit Mm. in our interaction with other people. What do I mean by that? Let's take something pre-crypto, Airbnb or TaskRabbit. So in the past, I wouldn't, you know, go and sleep in a stranger's house because I didn't trust them. But today, Airbnb allows me to kind of know more about them enough in order to trust them. But more interestingly, I probably would have done something like that in the past, but with a smaller group of people, you know, so I would have done it with my neighbor. You know, if my neighbor said, hey, do you want to, you know, your parents are coming over. Do you want them to stay here? Or like, can we switch apartments? We're going to do that. And he would have done that for you in pl- like, you know, as a favor. But even that favor has some sort of biological or economic reason. Because he, he believes that you're going to do the same for him. Or even if not about you specifically, he wants to live in a society where people trust each other. And know that they can, trust, you know, that they can exchange stuff. Right. For free, but in return for other free stuff. Yes. Uh, So and again, even in that world of biology, people are part of a group, not just because, you know, they're programmed to be part of a group, but because they assume, okay, this I'm making certain trade offs in order to belong here. And I get something in return, again, in terms of safety, in terms of access to economic opportunity, in terms of like people watching after my kids. Mm -hmm. All of that can be quantified ultimately one way or another if you want to be economic about it. But in the past, we didn't have to look at those things. We, didn't, we, we could hide the economic angle uh, behind all sorts of social covers. Now, today, the internet and crypto allow us to do more of that at scale, but to do it with strangers, and to do it with strangers, it, it basically forces us to ask ourselves, OK, what do you actually want, and how much are you willing to give in return for that thing that you want? So a lot of the stuff that in the past just looked like, OK, I'm just being polite because I'm inherently polite, or I'm a nice guy, even though even then, it wasn't really, you know, what what does polite mean? It just means I'm willing to suppress certain needs in order to get something else in return. Now, yes, it's becoming more explicit. But we can ask ourselves, is it really different from how things always work? Like, you know, uh, or is it just like now laying bare, just the way we like telling us really who we are? Uh, So Yeah, so that's one. Second, what happens if it doesn't work? So I think it will not work. It's probably not always gonna work anyway. So I mean, we'll see different solutions emerge at the same time. So I mean, yeah, we'll see governments experiment with universal basic income. Uh, We'll see new type of organizations that emerge that maybe are not like the nine to five corporation of the past but that ultimately are very similar to that. You know, groups of people that pull their own resources together and in return have the promise of some sort of stability and support, uh, which DAOs are a great example of. You know, DAOs are basically saying, hey, I'm not going to go and try to be on my own, but I'm just going to go and work with other people. And some of us will contribute more, some of us will contribute less, but all of us will get something in return. Uh, I think we're going to see more of some stuff that like Lee Jin wrote about, you know, like the emergence of universal creative income of like the platforms themselves, like the Facebooks or YouTubes, them or the future versions of them uh, are themselves going to say, hey, you know, we're gonna pay people to create content. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you become really successful, amazing, make money and we'll take a cut. If you don't, we'll take part of whoever is successful's money and we'll give it to you just for participating. And that actually brings us back to, to the Ponzi, the pyramid schemes that we were talking about before, Right, where we're seeing now games and even some social platforms basically paying people to just watch stuff or participate. Now, on the one hand, it looks completely uneconomic and you're saying, okay, this is bullshit. How can it work? It's not sustainable. Why would you pay customers to consume your product? But when you dive into the details of the economics of these products, you see that, for example, in the gaming world, I think in some types of games, 2 or 3% of all users generate about 80% of all the income Mm -hmm. or 90% of all, like 10% of all users basically generate almost all of the income. Yep. But those people wouldn't participate unless all the other people were there as well. Correct. To play the game and to make it fun. Just like in a nightclub, you know, they used to give free drinks to women so that they come in, they get a free drink so that the guys will pay the door charge and come and buy them even more drinks because yep. otherwise the business doesn't work. So we're now doing that at scale where some businesses only make sense if 95% of the people are actually paid to be there, but the 5% that pay so that pay in order to be there make enough money to subsidize the rest of the 95% and to even yep. make money for a few other people who are running the whole platform. Yep. So yeah, we'll just see the emergence of these kind of new business models that, that look crazy, but maybe, you know, their time has come.
0: Yeah, and you, you you end the piece and, you know, this, this will be kind of a good bookend to, um, to kind of this, this section before we go into the concluding because, I mean, we're almost at an hour and a half, which has flown by, but you end the piece saying, quote, in a world where our own self is a business, we will need alternative personas to separate our true self from our business self. But we can also use multiple personas to hedge our bets. Instead of living or dying by a single identity, we can have multiple ones in the hope that one of them becomes a viable business. So this is, you know, again, this is a, this is a fascinating thought exercise when you combine this idea with the future of the metaverse and and the metaverse economy, right? And so my my idea is, and you know maybe this is this is a question that I pose to you, is, like, do you see a world where, you log into the metaverse, whatever that means, whether it's putting on a headset, whether it's you know going into you know a space or picking up a controller. When you log into this metaverse as as different avatars, each you know do 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 each of them have like their own DAO where you basically onboard into the metaverse with a DAO, and then that DAO fits what type of business or service you are. So, for instance, say. Um, in the metaverse, like in one of them, I can log in and I'm a plumber and I can go and like fix these virtual homes water heaters and get paid in like plum tokens or something like that. Like is 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 that kind of where you see this going where DAOs become almost like the login credentials for what you do in the metaverse?
1: I, I wouldn't think about it in those terms. Yeah. Okay. I my, I, I think what what I meant in the piece is one, because those economic incentives and relationships become more explicit, and also everything becomes more personal because it's about you selling yourself, having a personal brand, building a channel. And and it's true even if you wanna get a nine to five job today, you know, if you have an online presence and you look cool and people can go and verify whatever it is that you're doing in your free time, then it becomes more important and more valuable. But the, the flip side of that is that it actually incentivizes you to constantly respond to that crowd to respond to the audience and maybe become someone that you don't wanna be or someone else. I can see it even in myself, you know, I tweet about different things, but my tweets about crypto have the highest engagement. So I find myself tweet more about it and spend more time about it. And then I ask myself, wait, is that really what I wanna spend time on? But the incentives are so strong and so seductive. Yeah. Uh, so if I had a few different personas, it would have been easier because then I could have a crypto hat and like a real estate hat and just like a whatever hat. Mm. Uh, and when I think of the metaverse and, and where we're headed, to me, the whole kind of pe- people tend to like dwell on like the visible aspects of it. of Like, oh, we're going to, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg built this like ugly uh, VR thing and he thinks we're all going to live there. That, you know, that's not the story here. I'm sure that Zuckerberg doesn't think that that's the story either. I mean, to me, what the metaverse means is that more and more of our life will happen on the internet? You know that mm-hmm. we'll generate goods, we'll transact with each other, uh, our social relationships, the way we make a living. More and more of that will be on the internet, and that—that's all. I mean, again, it's—it's—the yeah. it's nothing of it, and it's the everything of it. Hmm. Uh, so it's not about like whether you're going to wear a headset or not. Uh, it's about how we'll interact, and and how we will interact. I think a big part of it which we can't do in the real world, is that we will have multiple identities for various uses. And some of these identities will just be you know, for personal purposes that we just wanna keep things apart. But a lot of it will just be a series of different bets. You know, I don't know who I need to be in order to be successful in the world. And today I can try 10 different types of me, sometimes in parallel. And if one of them succeeds, then great. And I can even finance each of them by letting other people buy a piece of them, like we discussed. Uh, so yeah
0: okay no that that makes more sense but it also begs the question people just trying a bunch of different stuff it's like you know you're the you're you're kind of the you what is it something you know how to do something but you are the master of none i'm i'm forgetting that first yeah. part of that of that phrase which is weird but um
1: jack of all trades yes there, of it there it
0: is there it is jack of all trades master of none um and it's just it's it, it's going to be fascinating to see what people do because then they turn their life into a call option where it's like look i'm going to place a lottery ticket here 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 and here and yeah. maybe i find out that i'm like very very talented in this area and then i just dive dive deep into that so i think i think it'll do incredible things for the creative aspect in 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 mm-hmm. in all of us um, so i want to yeah and
1: i you know i think that where it will be most interesting is, is in like little differences. It's not like, Hey, I'm going to try to be a ballet dancer, but also I'm going to be like an economist. It's more about, Hey, I'm going to take this tone rather than that tone, or I'm going to focus a little bit more on this rather than like more like AB testing. Yes. Uh, Or like, yeah, I'm an economist, but also I have a hobby that I make music. So, you know, I can just do that under a different hat. If in the past I would have to hide it or feel like it's not appropriate. Now I can just do it. And if it, if it works, then wonderful. And if not, then. Yeah, I mean you I'm see this. In on, myself. Yeah,
0: I mean you you see this on Twitter with like anonymous accounts, where right. they are one person in the real world, and maybe they're like a sales executive, but on Twitter they're an anonymous account that's knows everything you need to know about crypto and yeah. the ability to kind of monitor and I might that. have
1: a few as well, and you never know. Yeah,
0: I mean you, we'll never know. We'll never know. So uh, let's let's kind of wrap up here. Um, you know, again, thanks so much for kind of taking the time. I've 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 thoroughly enjoyed picking your brain on, on these, on these subjects. Um, f- first question I have for you, what are you working on right now that are you, that, that you're extremely excited about or things that, you know, you can't stop thinking about whenever you're not working on it.
1: So I'm thinking about crypto and I, so I'm teaching an online course called high free crypto. So we're just wrapping up the first cohort, which is 130 people. And then there's another one starting in January, which is going to be even bigger and i'm actually starting the process of setting up a DAO with my students with the mission of educating the the next one billion crypto users so like onboarding the rest of humanity to crypto and giving them uh a high free introduction to it so you know a, yep. a comfortable introduction that they'll know what's going on but also not like try to force Become them to maximal, drink all the this <laughs> yeah not maximalist and also not fully cynical yep and what I'm trying to do is figure out a way, not just say hey, I'm building this DAO to promote my course and to make a lot of money on, on off of my students, but actually to build something that ultimately helps me fade as well and just become another member just like everyone else where you know, I can help it off the ground, I can put even some of the initial money in the treasury, but how do I design mechanisms that pull in other people and allow us actually to build something together towards a shared goal that allows me to you know make a living and do what I love, but also that maybe allows 50 other people or 500 other people to contribute to this cause yeah uh, and for other people who just want to invest in it to also invest in it and support us so that's uh, that's what's on my mind and also where am i going to go on vacation because i don't have a plan and i need to go somewhere warm
0: well what are your what are your first thoughts on vacation
1: i mean so i have i have two kids and one of them is just 2 months old and we didn't get his passport yet it's on the way but everything's taking forever now yep so we have to stay in the U.S., and it looks like all roads lead to Florida and Miami, one yep. way or another. Yep. But everyone's already going, and everyone has already planned their vacation, so we're struggling to find like the appropriate. Uh,
0: have you been deal. to Have you been to Hilton Head in South Carolina?
1: I haven't. Is it warm enough now? Oh, good
0: question. That's a relative. That's the, that. Let's let's check here. Hilton Head. Yeah, I mean it's warmer than New York, but well, I mean yeah, <laughs> obviously. So it's sixty three there today
1: okay
0: tomorrow it's supposed to be 72 and then next week looks like mid mid to upper 60s uh low 70s so honestly yeah that does seem pretty good
1: north carolina
0: yeah well south carolina south carolina yep Uh, south carolina sorry so yeah that's that's something i can even drive there maybe there yeah you can it's gonna be a long drive though tell you that much because i'm (laughs) because i'm from maryland and it's like six seven seven and a half hours um, so I'll yeah, so we'll right. stop
1: by you on the way and sleep and then keep
0: me Yeah, going. let me, know, let me <laughs> know when you roll through. <laughs> second, second question I have for you. Uh, where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're on Twitter. I know you've got a website. So make sure to plug those two things.
1: So my website, drawerpoleg.com, D-R-O-R-P-O-L-E-G.com, like Likewise for Twitter. Or the easiest one to remember is just hypefreecrypto.com. Uh, oh. com.
0: So. Awesome. The last question I have, I ask everybody this, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Or if you could have dinner, yeah, dinner with one person.
1: Hmm. Probably nothing too dramatic. I like Milan Kundera. He's a Czech author. He wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being and, and he's still alive. I think that's one person that I wish I had a chance to just hang out with for a couple of days and just chat about stuff, you know, about life, about love, politics. Yeah. Nothing, you know, Nothing too dramatic, but just awesome. I think it would be really pleasant.
0: Awesome. yeah, we haven't had that on we haven't had that suggestion before, so I appreciate you adding that to the bank. Uh drawer, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm glad we made it happen, and I wish you uh, the best of luck heading into the new year, and I hope you have a relaxing and warm vacation. And seriously, if you do come down south, like let me know uh, and we will meet up.
1: Amazing. Thank you, Brendan. This was fun. And yeah, wishing you also an amazing 2022. I think this it's going to be a good one, finally. <laughs> we.
0: This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, Transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's T I K R.com forward slash Hive.